I think it's really important that readers see the people behind the book, that the people behind the book are people of color or look like you. That's just taking diversity and inclusion and equity to another level. As readers, we often think about the connections to the characters and the story in front of us, specifically as we reassess representation and continue to create a new standard for diversity and inclusion in children's literature, mirror experiences are invaluable for young readers. But while those experiences are indeed invaluable, extending that mirror to include the people behind the pages is also important. For Varian Johnson, feeling that connection between himself and the author was just as impactful as seeing himself in the story. But I just remember loving these characters and this book and the journey that the characters were on and then kind of being amazed when I realized who Walter D. Myers was and that he was someone who looked like me and he was writing books. Varian Johnson is an author best known for titles such as Playing the Cards You're Dealt, Twins, and The Parker Inheritance. Varian's childhood discovery of Walter Dean Myers and that behind-the-book representation was crucial to his own aspirations as a writer. He believes that kids seeing themselves reflected in the authors whose books they read is vital. In this episode, Varian shares more about his own experiences connecting with the authors that inspired him as a kid. He'll tell us about the importance of creating and nurturing that relationship between reader and author, and also about the responsibility that comes with being the author in that relationship with young readers. Plus, on a lighter note, he reveals his favorite thing that libraries do to prepare for author visits. And at the end of the episode, Varian will share his very own Beanstack Reading Challenge, which has a focus on comics, so stick around for that. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and reading enthusiasts to explore ways to build a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas motivate kids to read more. Varian, as a young reader, what was your reading life like at home as a kid? And I kind of wonder if there were, what do you remember from that time when you were, when you would have been reading your books? I remember being read to first. There were always picture books around. We had this book, Make Way for Ducklings by Robert McClowski that we loved. And for some reason, that book always is just in my mind. It's a book that my parents read to me and then that I read myself. And then as I got older, I discovered chapter books and then novels. I remember discovering books by Beverly Cleary about Ralph S. Mouse, who rode that like the little toy motorcycle, and then Ramona and Beezus, Henry Huggins and Ribsy, anything that Beverly Cleary wrote, I would read. And then a librarian said, well, if you like these books, maybe you will like these other ones. And there were books by Judy Bloom. And so I was introduced to Sheila the Great, and then the books were Peter and Fudge. And then from there, I discovered Judy Bloom's older books, Iggy's House, Blubber, Are You There, Goddess Me, Margaret. And Are You There, Goddess Me, Margaret is still a favorite book. So certainly in my younger life, those, those two authors were really 
driving forces for me. And you, sorry, you said it was a librarian who found those for you. Do you have like a lot of recollections of the of the library? Was that your public library or your school library? It was a public library. I remember the public and the school library. I loved the public library more. I thought there were more books there and there was more access and it felt, I don't know, less judgmental. I don't know if the school librarians were judgmental necessarily. I do remember one of them saying, there was The Outsiders, the book by Essie Hinton. And I remember the librarian saying, well, you have to ask your parents permission before you can read the book. I don't even know if I wanted the book, but I remember thinking, well, why? And I could just go to my public library and pick it up. Um, and I love that the public library was very uh, encouraging for for whatever book I could read. I believe in that philosophy now that a kid can read just about anything and that a young reader will self-select and they will put things down if they're not ready for it. Did you go to the library a lot like after school? Was that sort of like your one of your haunts? Every two weeks we would go to the library. My mom was really big on us going there. We would just kind of walk up and down the shelves. I remember there was the children's section and like the teen section was like right outside of the section, like in this own little area. And it was small compared to what it is today. But like, I remember finding some of Judy Bloom's old other books there. I'm like, oh, well, what are these doing here? And uh, it was uh, Forever, I believe. Uh, or maybe Tiger Eyes, or maybe both. And of course, I read them, and I loved them. I would go pretty religiously. I mean, the kids, the librarians would know me and my brother and my sister kind of by name. And there was sometimes they would say, hey, there's this book that just got checked in. Maybe you want to check it out. They were always really supportive. Yeah, so it sounds like your mom was very involved in your reading life. I'm curious if she helped you discover Walter Dean Myers. I've heard you speak a lot about your connection with his work, uh, especially Motown and Dee Dee. That I found at my school library, actually. I remember finding it on like one of those wire baskets that twirls around. And I picked it up and it looked different. And it looked, felt older than maybe some of the other things I was reading. And like it was a cover with two black kids on it. And like that, I noticed that. And it made me want to pick up the book and read it. And as I read it, I loved it. And I was amazed by reading about these characters. And it was set in New York, but like a different, it was Harlem. It was a different part of New York than I had read about. I had never been there before. But I just remember loving these characters and this book and the journey that the characters were on. And then kind of being amazed when I realized who Walter Dean Myers was. And that he was someone who looked like me. And he was writing books. Uh, because at this point, I knew that I wanted to be a writer, but all I really knew was Beverly Cleary and Judy Bloom, and I had read C.S. Lewis, and I had the sense that there were these, you know, famous, rich, affluent white authors who lived wherever else, and that a kid like me couldn't really be a writer, not until I discovered Walter D. Myers. And then from Walter's books, I discovered... Um, Virginia Hamilton's books as well, too. And that kind of put me on the path of certainly discovering characters who look like me, but discovering authors who look like me, too, and realizing that if they can write books, then maybe I could as well. Yeah, I want to explore that a little bit more. But just first, you said you knew by then you wanted to be a writer. So I'm wondering when that like clicked for you. So here's part of it. I, I loved the power I got from writing, and I loved when I would write and someone would read it. It took a long time to show my stuff to other people. Uh, but my brother would read it and he would give 
lots of encouragement, and then my family and my friends, and like they would laugh at what I wrote, or they would find it really, really interesting, or they wouldn't chastise me if it was too long, right? Like if I needed extra time for writing a story in class, my teacher always gave me extra time. Like it was, it, I was kind of encouraged to do this writing. And Beverly Cleary had this book, Dear Mr. Henshaw, where this kid is writing to this author and like, oh yeah, I want to I want to do that too. Like I want to be a writer and I want to write to an author. I remember one summer I wrote letters to Judy Bloom and I wrote two letters to Judy Bloom and then my cousin found them. And my cousin thought I had a girlfriend named Judy. And so <laughs> I ripped up the letters. I like I burned them maybe even. And I realized I wasn't gonna do that again. But like like the character in the book, I kind of wanted to be a writer as well, too. So I was trying to figure it out in all these different ways. How could I be a writer? It's funny. So I guess she never could have written you back if you if you burned them. Chapter one. Jeremiah was black. He could feel it the way the sun pressed down hard and hot on the skin in the summer. Sometimes it felt like he sweated black beads of oil. He felt warm inside the skin, protected. In the Fort Greene, Brooklyn, where everyone seemed to be some shade of black, he felt good walking through the neighborhood. But one step outside, just one step, and somehow the weight of his skin seemed to change. It got heavier. Jacqueline Woodson's 1998 novel, If You Come Softly, is essentially the love story of a young boy named Jeremiah and a young girl named Alicia. But layered beneath their blossoming relationship are the deep impacts of the identities they are both born with. Alicia is a white Jewish girl, and Jeremiah is a black boy. Woodson invokes the timeless tale of star-crossed lovers while introducing the themes of racism and social stigma— This is a novel that inspires Varian deeply, not just because of the profoundly relevant themes, but also because of the way Jeremiah is first introduced. I love just the beginning openings of that scene because so often in a book we're talking about the cost of Blackness, the trauma of Blackness. I love how Jacqueline, uh, how Woodson starts off about how he loves his skin, how he loves walking through his neighborhood, how confident he is while also realizing as soon as he's outside of that neighborhood, outside of those those warm confines, people look at him differently. He feels different. Like he's aware of how society sees him and that impacts him in maybe a negative way or certainly in a way that he's aware of. But she doesn't start off with the negative. She starts off with the powerful, the beautiful, This this all this about his skin and walking around his neighborhood. Do you remember when you first read it? Yeah, I was an adult, um, for sure. At this point, I was writing, and I was trying to figure out what type of writer I wanted to be. And I had come to discover Jacqueline Woodson's work. And this might have been, Locomotion might have been the first book of hers that I read. I can't remember. This might have been the first YA novel of hers that I read. And it just kind of caught me by surprise, because just how beautiful it is and how it opened it that way. And I don't know if I had ever seen something written like that before, certainly not for young people, not not in that way. Certainly Virginia Hamilton and Walt D. Myers and all these other amazing authors talked about race and culture, but I just love the way that this book just opened with it. It was really powerful.
oneself in the pages of their favorite books has an incredible impact on readers of all ages. But seeing yourself beyond the pages is an extension of that concept that means a lot to Varian. For him, it was equally important to see that the person writing those characters also looked like him. Varian already spoke a bit about the impact the reader-author relationship had on him as a reader. I was curious to hear his thoughts about that experience now that he's on the other side of it as an author. I think it's really important that readers see the people behind the book, the authors, the illustrators, the librarians, the teachers, the the folks in uh, publicity and marketing. And obviously a young reader won't see all of that. But, you know, it is just important to know that the people behind the book are people of color or look like you. That's just taking diversity and inclusion and equity to another level. You know, I think the industry has done very well reasonably. I think we have a long way to go. I am proud of where, where, where we've come from. But it used to be where you could take a character and say they were black and that was considered good enough. That was diversity. Or you have the the black or the Korean or the Latinx best friend, let's say. And then we start expecting more of that. We want we want main characters of color. We want them to have their own stories. We want stories that are not just seeped in trauma and tragedy. We want happy, uplifting stories as well, too. And, and we want a diversity of stories. And then with that, We want a diversity of authors telling these stories. We want the ability for writers to tell stories that are germane, uh, important to their background, to their culture. And I do think I will never tell the author what they can or cannot write. I do also think, though, that um, lived experience counts for something and that lived experience will trump just about any other research you can do. And I think it's important for young people to see that. I love doing school visits. I love doing school visits where someone can see who I am. And maybe their background is similar to mine. Maybe they're not. But they're seeing and interacting with me as an author, as a person, as a human. You know, I take that responsibility really seriously. I always love going to schools with primarily diverse populations. I think that's really, really important. I want them to see me and hear me talk in a way. But I think it's also important for me to go to schools that aren't as diverse. I, you know, I want white kids in in the Midwest to see a black guy as an author. And I think that there's always these negative stereotypes that are associated with black people, black men. And I want to dispel some of that. I don't want their first experience with a black person to be when they're an adult, when they've been fed all these mistruths, lies, misconceptions about who I am. I take that really, really seriously. I think it's really important for me to do. Do you feel like now that you, I mean, you've, you've written a pretty diverse range of books in terms of the type and the topic and the way there, and I wonder, do you feel like from a perspective of what you are expected to produce, do you feel as a Black author that you are expected to produce a Anything in particular? You know, I used to. I really struggled with that. I really, I was afraid. I thought that as a Black author, I could only write quote-unquote Black books. And I was afraid that these books would be marginalized and minimalized and that they would be kind of put in a corner somewhere and they would only be marketed to Black kids, which I want Black kids to read my books, but I want everyone to read my books. And I hated that weight, that 
feeling pigeonholed, I guess. And my philosophy has changed over the years. Uh, some of that with talking with Jacqueline Woodson and with Rita Williams Garcia and with all these other amazing authors. And like, I see it as a um, privilege. You know, I love writing about black characters and black culture and my culture. And knowing that I don't have to be pigeonholed to do that, that I can write whatever I want to write. But I love writing about kids with backgrounds similar to mine. I think there's a place for stories like that. I And I I guess I take pride in that. I don't feel the weight or the burden, the responsibility of it anymore. I feel the privilege of being able to do it, the, the joy in being able to do it. And it really has lightened my writing as well, too. Like, I feel so much freer. And with that, I find I can write different types of stories. It could be something a little bit heavier or it could be something lighter. You know, I love that I can write twins and playing the cards you're dealt and the Parker inheritance and all these other different books. And they have some of the same DNA, but they're all really different as well, too. My daughter loved twins, by the way. I mean, she must have read it. I never seen her read a book like so many times. You know, I mean, it just like kept coming back. Like, you already read that. Awesome. I know. Reading again. <laughs> yeah, I do. And I think there is like a, a lightness, even in even when you are in like the Parker inheritance or when you're dealing with a you know heavier, heavier topics too. As we've discussed a lot in this conversation so far, the relationship between author and reader is something that Varian really values. However, that relationship, like any, also demands honesty and trust. As a children's author, your words can have a powerful impact on kids' ideas and their critical thinking. Varian takes that seriously. In writing about complex topics such as toxic masculinity and playing the cards you're dealt, he puts a lot of care into how he approaches these themes. I asked him to share his philosophy when it comes to the act of shaping kids' thoughts and perspectives through his stories. My first philosophy is don't lie to them, right? Don't talk down to a young reader. They're smart and they can figure it out and they will know if you're sugarcoating it or, or BSing them. And it doesn't mean that it has to be dark and dreary, but it has to be truthful. And when I was writing specifically with Playing the Cards You're Dealt, I was thinking a lot about that. How do I make this true to Aunt himself, his father? How do I end the book in a place that is realistic yet hopeful? And I don't always get it right on the first try. I have to do lots of revision on that. But when I'm revising, I am thinking about what is my authorial responsibility? And I'm not one to say that every author has a hat one. And some folks don't. They're like, I only write for me, and that's that, and so be it. And that's fine. I am thinking about my end reader a little bit, about who might be reading this book and who might benefit from this book as a, as a mirror book where they can see their own life reflected or, or, or as a window book or a glass, sliding glass door book where they can see another world and want to peek into it or, or experience it through the safety of a book. I am thinking about those. I'm thinking about how do I do this in a way that is truthful but safe. Uh, and humor like, is always a good way to do that. I feel like humor dispels a lot. But I'm also never afraid of showing vulnerability as well, too. I love showing vulnerable characters. I, I hate the idea of us not being vulnerable in real life, life and not asking for help and not be, being afraid to show emotion. A lot of that went into writing, playing the cartridge dealt. 
I guess I'm always thinking about how would I want this character to exist in real life? Even if they make mistakes, who would I want them to be? And can I get them at least on that path by the end of the book? You talked earlier about your commitment to school visits and what you bring with you in terms of your mental preparations and your potential impact on the students. But how about the reverse? Are there communities or schools that have prepared for you in ways that you really appreciate or love? I love it when students read a book, right? I will always love if a student is familiar with me. I love they read if they've been exposed to the books before I come. Um, sometimes a, a teacher or librarian will read a short story from an anthology, which works too. I just that they have some familiarity with who I am as an author, I think is really, really important. I've had the great fortune of going to some places where the Parker inheritance has been an all-community read. So everyone in the grade will read it, or if I'm even lucky, like they'll be adults through elementary school and they'll be all reading the book. Uh, A public library or a school will make books available. And then I love those conversations because then I come in and we're talking about the book and they're asking me questions, but often it's, it's conversation between generations as they're reading the book and what they feel about it, what they think about it. And it's really interesting to see kind of what, what certain generations kind of gravitate towards what they like, what resonates with them in the book. Those are really, really fulfilling. I mean, those are some of the best visits where they, where I can get a diverse group in terms of age, ethnicity, sexuality, gender, all that together, sitting down to talk about this one book. Um, and Parker has lent itself to do that really, really well. Those have been really, really rewarding. Yeah, I love a community read when people and everybody's in on it. I've seen them like whole citywide community reads or, you know, but certainly in a school if you're visiting and the parents and teachers and everybody have all been in on it. Those are the best, yes. I was thinking, um, it's kind of as your kids grow up, I'm looking at holes. You have holes sitting right Mm. behind you. Yes. Okay. I think I've been pronouncing his name wrong forever, and you hit me to that in something that you... That I was watching of you, anyways. But um, <laughs> I can be, I can be. I think it's Lewis Sacker. Sacker. I think it's Sacker. The point is, I, I love that book as well. But I never read it when I was younger. You know, I don't know why. I guess I just missed it. But we read it not too long ago aloud with our kids. Of course, my kids are now reading on their own all the time, which means you really miss out on that experience that you're speaking to now, where you share reading with your kids. And it's been really refreshing for me through the podcast and just in general to every once in a while read a book together. As I'm preparing for the podcast, actually, I read Playing the Cards You're Dealt with Cassius and we were able to have these great conversations and pick up on completely different things we read, but also make a lot of connections about the same text. Speaking of that shared experience as a family, Varian's novel, Playing the Cards You're Dealt, was one of those books that fostered rich engagement and conversation in my own family, particularly with my son, Cassius, who is one of the many young readers that have felt a strong attachment to Varian's characters. I felt like the story's main character, Ant, took up residence in our house while he was reading the book. Aunt this and aunt that, Cassius even convinced his great aunt Dell and his dad to teach him how to play spades like aunt. He was ecstatic when I told him Varian would be joining the podcast. So I promised him that he could ask a question of his own. 
His first question is one that I assume many readers may have had after reading Playing the Cards You're Dealt. My first question for you is how good is your spades game? I think it's pretty good. Like I'm, I, I will say I've not played super competitively in a while. My oldest daughter plays a little bit, but she she can play the cards. But like there's, you know, there's there's swagger with it, right? A little pizzazz, a little trash talking, right? And like she's not so good at that part. So I feel like if you take my playing and my ability to do a little trash talk, I feel like I have kind of an A game. Maybe not by themselves, but together, I'm okay. <laughs> He's got the trash talk part down. The other question, arguably more serious, although spades can be a pretty serious game, was about the theme of toxic masculinity in the book. What are traits you think are important for young people to have, especially boys like me? Boy, toxic masculinity, I think it is such a dangerous thing. I think I was explaining to maybe my daughter, or maybe I was doing a school visit, and I was talking about how this philosophy that's been passed down, the strong and silent type, right? And just like grinning and bearing and getting through it and like, you know, whatever it takes to survive. And I'm like, those are all great, but like, there's a reason that family exists, right? And isn't it great to tell someone you need help and for them to be there to help you? I want you to do that. Like if you're struggling, I want you to tell me so I can help. And sometimes I don't know unless you cry or show emotion. Like I, I can't figure it out. I just hate this idea that boys are sometimes told to just toughen up, right? And just deal with it or grin and beer or or whatever the case. It's okay to cry. It's okay to show emotion. That's how we signal that we need help. And I have been trying to instill that in my kids, my relatives, everybody I know saying, hey, I cry. It's okay to cry. It's okay to go to therapy. It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to do all of these things. It doesn't make you any weaker. If anything, it makes you strong because you're showing where you know you have strength and where you might need help. And it's okay to ask for help. It's never not okay to ask for help. And I think this is happening more and more, um, but I still run into pockets of places where, you know, the boys will be boys. You got to act tough. You got to man up. I just, I hate that verbiage so much because I think it's it's dangerous and it perpetuates. What were you like growing up? Did you feel like encouraged to express your emotions or did you, I mean, and then what was like your... Oh yeah, I, I was for sure not encouraged to express emotions, I think, or, or, or in different ways, right? I don't think any kids who were raised the time we were really like that not encouraged at all. Yeah. Um, but there was this idea that, you know, the world is a dangerous, tough place. We got to toughen you up and get ready. I remember, again, love my dad, but I remember him once saying, you know, world's hard. You got to really toughen up if you're going to survive. And that is true, but it could also be true that the world is tough and we can survive it better if we talk about it and work together to do that. I think I grew up in a time where a lot of men kind of believed that it was all on them to provide for their family. And it led to mistakes. It led to risky business things, right? Or gambling or drinking or doing whatever to cope with this enormous pressure on them that didn't always have to be that way. Women too. There's this this whole philosophy of the song a strong black woman, right? And yes, I love a strong black woman, but also you don't have to be strong by yourself, right? There, there's family, there's there's other people to lean on. We shouldn't 
I hate the idea that we have to feel like we have to carry all this burden by ourselves. And that's anything I can get young people to see is that they don't have to do it all by themselves. Again, that was Varian Johnson. As you've come to know, everyone that we speak to on this podcast will also provide us with their own unique reading challenge for all listeners and partners on Beanstack. Varian's challenge is called Drawn in Color. It focuses on graphic novels featuring diverse main characters and created by diverse authors. We're in this golden age of graphic novels, right? There's so many graphic novels coming out and they're amazing and wonderful and we still don't have enough created by or featuring people of color. I will always say like Raina Telkemeyer is the Judy Bloom of graphic novels. Like I think Raina has really opened the doors for all these other people to come into this middle grade space for doing graphic novels. But I love that we're seeing graphic novels where kids can represent their culture, but not in a way that's tragic. That they're celebrating culture, this joy in their culture. All of our listeners can join Varian's challenge, Drawn in Color, by visiting thereadingculturepod.com. There, you'll find the full list of Varian's recommended books and more details about the challenge. And before we sign off, let's give some recognition to the wonderful librarians in our Beanstack community. Today's Beanstack featured librarian is Leah Wyan the youth fiction selector for Tulsa City County Library in Oklahoma. She told us about a recent heartwarming experience from her library featuring beloved author Jason Reynolds. Over the course of the pandemic, of course, we moved to doing all of our huge programs virtually, and we really missed out on some reliable connections with students and being able to take authors that we were bringing in to give them awards to schools and have them meet the students and really form personal connections. I miss that so much. And I thought in early May 2021 that we might be able to bring our award-winning author that year and we weren't able to do it in person. So we had to do this virtually. But of course, It worked out because the author was none other than Jason Reynolds, who is amazing in every form or medium or modality that you experience him, right? So we did our big award program virtually, and he met with some of the writers who had won our writing contest virtually, and he met with a local high school, Booker T. Washington High School. And it was such a difficult production to get it up and running and everything, but he connected so deeply with those students And a couple months later, I was in one of my local uh, independent bookstores, Magic City Books, and I was just browsing the shelves and I overheard a high schooler come in and ask for one of Jason Reynolds' books. And she said, you know, he came and visited my school. Well, virtually, but, and she was just still so pumped up about him and about reading. And that just made me really so happy to think that all of that effort and had been worth it and that the connection still really came through, even through the screen. This has been The Reading Culture. And thanks again to today's guest, Varian Johnson. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd Bookie. And currently I'm reading The Getaway by Lamar Giles, and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. If you enjoyed today's show, 
please show some love and rate, subscribe, and share the reading culture among your friends and networks. To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources at beanstack.com. This episode was produced by Jackie Lamport and Lower Street Media and edited by Josiah Lamberto Egan. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of the show. Thanks for joining and keep reading.